Hello, welcome to The Opinionistics. I'm your host, John Maloney. In this episode, we don't have co-hosts, because reasons, I guess. Introducing from Pennsylvania, Benjamin Freeman. That's me. <laughs> yes, it sure is. So, Benjamin, what is it you do for a living? Well, I'm actually semi-retired now, and I... At this point, I mainly work on world peace, and I wrote a book, Becoming Angels in Paradise, and I promote both of them. And um, I used to be in the real estate business. I have a little bit of real estate left, but only part-time. Mm, very nice. So what inspired you to take the path that you've been on so in the past? Well... Since I was a teenager, my mind has always wondered why humanity, with our common desire for love and friendship, hasn't used modern technology to develop a world of abundance and love. And I had visions about that, and I've studied it, and believe it or not, despite the fact I made a living other ways, I've worked on that all my life. I used to give speeches in front of groups on cooperation and notice what kind of feedback I got. Uh, when security council reform at the UN was taken seriously, I ran a UN reform organization because I believe that world peace could be the first step in us realizing, redirecting our future in a more cooperative, compassionate, and obviously peaceful way. And I've worked on my book and I've published this book. And I also try to live as much as I can in my life to be kind and compassionate and giving. Wow. Fabulous. So what is it in your peace plan that is something that you want the whole world to like to achieve to some extent? You know, the key to world peace is very simple. And the greatest genius of the modern age, Albert Einstein, clearly said that unless we empower the UN Security Council to fulfill its charter obligation to keep the peace, we will eventually have a nuclear war. So the key to my peace plan is dealing with both of the two issues that prevent the UN from being able to keep the peace. The first is the unilateral veto system because the US, Britain, France, China, and Russia each can veto any resolution. Obviously, almost every resolution that's controversial is vetoed by one of them. The second is we have to come up with a way to allow the UN to have the forces to enforce its ideas. Now, in terms of the second one, the interesting thing is when nations talked about this officially from 1992 to 2004, what they were talking about was adding members of the Security Council. And it didn't work out greatly because people were talking about adding this country or that country, so other countries said, why not us? But the solution, and I'm not the only person who thought of this, but only a few countries said it officially, a lot of diplomats saw it, was to connect the adding of new members to providing troops. In other words, if India wanted to be a new member, they would have to provide a lot of troops. 
you know, so different new members would provide troops. That would give the troops. And getting rid of the veto, the countries that don't have a veto always assume that the five permanent members have nothing to gain from getting rid of it. But it's a little more complicated than that. It really depends on how it's gotten rid of. Because, I mean, obviously, France would gain if the proposals it promotes couldn't be vetoed by the other four. And so it's a question that there are a lot of different creative ways to get rid of the veto that would be a win-win, particularly if combined with other countries providing troops and then combined with a weighted voting system at the UN. And so I believe that um, there is a compromise system. And right now, we have more motivation than ever to do it because Putin, if you really listen to what Putin said, and he was really echoing what all Russian leaders from Gorbachev to Yeltsin said, which is that the expansion of the EU and NATO has had the effect of isolating Russia, which is really unfair since Gorbachev voluntarily ended the Cold War. He wasn't defeated. And he thought he had had a deal from Chancellor Cole and President Bush Sr. that Russia would be included in Europe if they voluntarily allowed Germany to reunify. And so if you create an entirely new world order that integrates Russia into Europe and the world in a friendly way, it would make sense in terms of what Russia wanted in the first place. And in fact, the head of a Russian foreign policy think tank has helped me come up with a plan and important diplomats in a lot of countries see the value. And more importantly, it's, it's always been logical. But suddenly the Arab-Israeli thing makes it more logical. And I'll tell you why. If you had a much stronger UN, you could solve the Arab-Israeli problem. And I've been... I'm Jewish. I've been to Israel, talked to many Jew, Jews from Israel. I've been in the Neset. I've been in Ramallah. Actually, somebody in Ramallah supported me, said they showed my idea to Hamas. See, the way in which a strong UN can solve this problem, that it can't be solved without a strong UN, is that if is that what sec- Israel wants is security. Obviously, a strong UN can provide security in a way that no written agreement by itself can. And what the Arabs want is a state. And and the rub, if you remember when Arafat was actually close to settling it with more peace-oriented Israeli leaders, was that the Arab world wants at least a small part of Jerusalem. But I know from discussing a lot of leaders of the Arab world. I also discussed it at the Arab League. What they really don't want is for Israel to control all of Israel, all of Jerusalem, particularly the the third hope in Islam, which is in East Jerusalem. And so the compromise would be that you'd have a, a, a buffer zone state between Israel and the West Bank and that would be ruled by the UN. It would include most of East Jerusalem. 
and the UN Security Council itself would move to East Jerusalem, and there'd be UN troops, since we're having countries to get seats on the Security Council to provide troops, a lot of them would be sitting in this buffer zone to protect Israel from the Arabs and the Arabs from Israel. And if we're talking about getting rid of the veto, my actual plan involves geographically getting rid of it. It's a little bit complicated. But the U.S. alone would have a veto over Arab-Israeli things, and the Israelis trust the U.S., and therefore it would cause Israel to be willing to go back to the 67 borders if the rest of Jerusalem and the area where most of the settlements are was ruled by the U.N., where the U.S. had the greatest control. And yet the Arabs would still get a true state. And so you could settle the Israeli thing this way too. So the reason it's timely now is that not only would it lead to a resolution of the Arab-Israeli situation, but it would give Putin what, it, what he wants to compromise. And interestingly enough, the Ukraine also would benefit, as would Great Britain, from a related solution I've come up with. Um, many people know that when Romano Prodi, head of the Council of Ministers, he came up with an idea called Friends of Europe, creating sort of a secondary organization around the EU. And the members of that organization would only be economic members. They would not be involved with the things you British didn't like. And actually that's perfect for the Ukraine and Russia too. And so, if the Ukraine and Russia and Britain, along with Turkey and Norway, whoever else is a European country, but not a member of the EU, were invited into this organization, then the Ukraine and Russia would benefit, and that might motivate them to compromise on the territorial issues, because both of them would benefit from being part of the system. So my bottom line point is, in addition to ending war, Strengthening the UN now could solve both the Arab-Israeli problem and the Ukrainian problem. And that's why it's specifically timely now. Does that make any sense to you? Yes, it sure does. And I love it. Well, you know, people are welcome to contact me. I talk about this as part of my book, if I may get to my book. The first two thirds of my book, Becoming Angels in Paradise, goes over how all the major holy books and most secular evidence suggest that we would be better off living far more cooperatively and compassionately than we do. And that many people think this is against human nature, but actually, People like animals react to circumstances. And in the pre-modern era, it is true that pe some people benefit from looking out for number one. A lot of people did. So you can never create that kind of society. But in the post-modern era, which is very interdependent, it would be more efficient economically to be more cooperative. And it's the only way to avoid things like climate change and nuclear war. So the first two thirds outlines the rationale. Then the second third of the book goes into how we can change. And as you might guess, the first thing 
that I talk about is this peace proposal I just described to you, that if the human race made peace at this moment in time, everybody would be so shocked that it happened because no one expects it now, that it would sort of cause all of us to realize that maybe other people do want to make the world better. If I may, I don't know how long you're going to give me, but end or maybe not end. Let me tell you what I've learned that's the most interesting of all from people I've discussed my ideas with. And this includes when I talk to VIPs about peace plan or people about my general ideas. Almost everybody says, I like your ideas. That world would be wonderful. But I don't think it's possible because the other guy wouldn't like it. Now, here's the key. We judge others by their behavior. And judge, judging people by their behavior, none of us act perfectly, including me. But, if you, but you judge yourself by what's in your heart. And in our hearts, we all would prefer love and peace and kindness and compassion. So, therefore, the fact that people would prefer it, and it's also appropriate in the postmodern era, it's a good form of adaptation, means that we could walk together on that path if we use carefully calibrated steps in that direction. So that's my main message. What do you think of my message? I love it. I'm glad you love it. And anyone that has connected with a politician or a big diplomat, give them if they call you, give them my email address. But anybody that wants to read about it, um, you know, I have the book, Becoming Angels in Paradise. Now, in Great Britain, it's only available as an ebook, but in North America, you can get the physical book too on Amazon. And, you know, anyone could also write me in terms of either my peace proposal or the book at um, benjamin.freeman at verizon.net. Do you have any, right. more, have any more questions for me? <laughs> uh, yes. Where do you see yourself 20 years from now? Well, you don't realize how old I am. I'm 72. So 20 years from now, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be alive. <laughs> Oh. You didn't know I was 72. I've been no, working on this. I've been working on these ideas since I was a teenager. And that's right, over 50 years. That's <laughs> any crazy. Other, any other questions? Uh yes. If you were given five hundred acres of land, what would you use that land for? That's a good question. I never thought of that. What would I do if, it depends where the 500 acres was. If it was beautiful, I would like to build a cooperative community there, even if it wasn't beautiful. I've always believed in cooperative communities. As a matter of fact, I lived on a few. And what I think, the reason people don't live, it's much more practical for a lot of reasons. The people can't live in more cooperative communities. Most people can't. Because people always try to win even in personal issues. It's hard enough to sort of compromise with your wife or your husband, let alone with 50 people that you live in a cooperative community. 
And my book also goes into, and I've spent a lifetime thinking about this, how we can interact in a more cooperative way. And if people did, we could live in a cooperative community. So therefore, I guess your answer is, I would like to use it to build a cooperative community, invite people interested in that type of living to live there. That doesn't mean like a commune. My idea of a cooperative community is everybody has their own small structure with a bedroom, maybe a bathroom. And yet there's a common house where people eat together and do social things together. And we share cars and things like that, which actually, and child rearing to a certain extent. And it's actually very practical. That's why Israeli kibbutzis have been very good. But the problem is that it only works if people learn from the most important saying in my mind in world history. The Buddha said this, those who are wise will forgo the game of victory and defeat. If he stopped trying to always win and instead look for ways to create win-win solutions, cooperative living, a cooperative world, a cooperative UN would be easy to work. Of course, if I may summarize all the holy books, People always think how there's big differences, but the differences are about secondary issues. On the most important issue, all the major holy books agree, behavior. And what they all teach is give more, take less, and lovingly serve the greater good. If we all did that, all the political stuff would fall into place. It's really basically a question of behaving. Of course, people aren't going to behave that way unless we live in a world that favors that. So it is a little bit of a complicated process. But I think it's possible for the human race. Yes, absolutely. So, do you have any other questions? or? Yes, there's more. Okay. There's a little time. But eventually we'll get there. You were hosting a dinner party, and you could invite five guests. You were either alive or dead. Who would you invite? Oh, that's easy. I'd invite the the heads of state of the five permanent members of the UN: President Xi, President Putin, President Biden, President Macron, and Prime Minister Sunak. And I would try to convince them to compromise for the greater good of a of a stronger UN. Yes, that sounds like a great idea. What's a common misconception people have about you? Me personally? You know, because I'm pretty smart and I I do know, you know, a lot, people think that I'm trying to win. <laughs> they don't realize I'm trying to create fair solutions. And like even in my personal life, I just I try to come up with what's best for everybody, and people mistrust that. That's the biggest common. The other thing, the other common perception, on a more personal level, is most people focus on their own lives, whether they're good people or bad people. I really have always focused on the big picture. Like, I've always been more interested in how the world could change and the cosmos 
And people have trouble realizing that because there are very few people that focus to the extent I do on the big picture. Yeah, absolutely. Would you rather never age physically or never age mentally? Would I rather what, mentally or physically? Would you rather never age physically or never age mentally? Well, I'd rather never age mentally. Yeah, I can get by that. Have you ever imagined a world that is literally a big, massive garden? I'm a little old, as you know, and I can't hear good. As a world as richly what? Have you ever imagined a world that is one massive garden? Like the Garden of Eden? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can say that. Well, yeah, that's what my book is about. It's called Becoming Angels in Paradise, how we can transition from this world to a world that is like a giant garden and that's loving and, you know, people were nurturing, nurturing plants, nurturing each other. So, yes, I have imagined a world that's like a giant garden. Nice. What is your favorite quote? Oh, I told you that already. Oh, yeah. Something Buddha said, those who are wise will avoid the game of victory and defeat. That's my favorite quote. Okay. Is there another quote you, that you like? Oh, a second favorite. I think when Roosevelt said, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. I mean, it isn't quite that simple, but that's a very good guidance. A big, the fact that we fear too too much is a problem. Now, we take that from the days when we were an animal. We still have a lot of that mentality. And if you think of yourself as an animal out in the wild, the reason it's logical to be fearful is that the best you could do by you know, fighting and winning against other animals is eat it and give yourself a meal. But the worst is you could be killed. So people's tendency is to be more fearful. And similarly, in pre-modern nations where, you know, you can be exploited easily, people tend to have a lot of fears, which is appropriate. But as we move toward a better world, a more cooperative world, we have to give up fear. So I think Roosevelt's saying that nothing to fear but fear itself is another one that I like. Nice. What should they teach in high school that they don't? What did I take in high school? What should they teach in high school? That oh, what they should they don't? teach? Well, actually, to tell you the truth, I'm not saying they don't teach it at all, but I think I think the world's very overpopulated, and they should have more emphasis on encouraging people to either use birth control or some sort of method of of um, preventing yourself from having children or to only have children if you're really ready, willing, and able to have them. That's one thing. But of course, the other thing, as you can guess from everything I've said, is we really got to teach people values. But what I mean by values is cooperation, compassion, and the advantages of it. So they would be the two main things I would focus on more in high school. Yeah, absolutely. Would you rather be able to breathe underwater 
or have the agility of a cat? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Am I allowed to say I don't know? <laughs> you can say you're not sure. Yes, I don't know. <laughs> All right, fair enough. If you could turn any activity into an Olympic sport, what would you have a good chance at winning a medal for? I told you I can't hear good. If I could turn any activity into an Olympic sport, what would you have a good chance of winning a medal for? If I could turn... I hate to sound dumb after my intelligent remarks, but I don't know the answer to that either. <laughs> you're giving me tough questions. The beginning was easier because it's stuff I know. Now you're asking me questions. I don't know the answer. <laughs> I hope you don't get mad that I don't know all the answers. It's all right. It's fine. It happens, especially to me. Would Do you, you have any more questions? Yes. Uh, would you ever try space tourism? Space origin? Tourism. You know, so, you know, when you go around the world to like Rome, Paris, uh, Bangkok, uh, those places? Right. I've, I've been, I've traveled a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking that kind of tourism where you go around visiting places, but going into space, would you try that? Yeah, I would try something like that. I, I believe in being adventurous. I believe in being very adventurous unless it hurts others. I, I am I draw the line at hurting other people, but anything adventurous I like to try. Well, I don't like to hurt myself either, but you know, as long as it's not hurtful to others, yes, I like adventure. All right, very good. If you could travel back in time, what decade what would you want to live in? That's a good question. Let me think about it rather than say, I don't know. If I go back in time, what decade would I like to live in? That's a good question. Well, it'd be better to go forward in time. I'd like to see the future, but you didn't ask that. You said back in time. Yeah. I think that the world was nicer around 1900. I would go back to 1900 to 1910 hmm. before world war one, but we still had some modern conveniences. Yes, absolutely. What was the last book you've read? Oh, I read so many. I read like two or three books at once. The last I'm reading right now. A book. Let me try to remember its name. Give me a second. All right. It's called, I mean, talk about something recent. A book called, I'm getting it out now. It's called A Sense of Self. And it was written by a psychiatrist who tries to make the argument that our mind creates well, not just our mind, our, our sensory inputs as mediated through our mind create our sense of self and our view of reality. 
And it's an interesting point, but really why I got it was to see how she dealt with, okay, I found the book interesting, but I disagree with a big part of the premise. The woman who wrote it was a psychiatrist, but she admits she's an atheist. I think that in fact, and this book helped me think about it, that there's two different parts of our thinking. There's our animal brain, which all animals have at different levels, and we're hardwired. It's hardwired into our nervous system. And that sort of reacts directly to inputs, which is really what she's talking about. But I think we also have a mind. And I think the mind is a partnership between our animal brain and our soul. As you can guess from the fact that I talk about the holy books, I believe in the soul. But I have, in my mind, some scientific proof for it. And I, I was interested in reading the book to see why an intelligent person who focuses just on really how the animal brain just sort of reacts to stimuli and they think that's all of reality, where that way of thinking misses where our soul comes in. And so I found it very interesting. Even though I didn't agree with everything, I found it very interesting. Mm. Fabulous. And that is all we have for this episode. It's great having you on, Benjamin. Talking about your work as an author, your draft on world peace, and everything else has been great. Well, then, anyone's interested, they can write me at benjamin.freeman at verizon.net. I'm more than happy to have people write me and say their opinions. Or since you're in England and the hard copy of my book isn't available there. If they ask for one, I'll be happy to mail it to somebody. Nice. And until next time, stay opinionated. <laughs>